0: Welcome back to the show, Science, Facts, and Fallacies, Episode 254. My name is Cameron English, your host as always, joined again by Dr. Liza Dunn, toxicologist, physician, and a person with funny stories to share this episode, <laughs> as you will all discover very quickly. Liza, what's going on? How are you?
1: Not much. How are you doing?
0: I'm, uh, I'm doing great. Uh, my son discovered the word mine this week, so anytime he wants oh. something, it's mine. Mine, it's mine. mine yeah mine so the the movie finding nemo is way funnier now cuz i always thought the seagulls or pigeons whatever they are i thought they were saying mine cuz they that's what the bird sounds like but yes. no 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 that's about little kids that only say mine, mine or mine. mine yeah it's so that was my revelation for the week
1: wait till uh, the sibling comes along then he's going to look at his mom and he's going to go mine no mine <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, a couple months from now, his world is about to be rocked for sure. So, uh, yep, it'll be fun. Anyways, uh, I had a terrific week. Thank you for asking. And let's uh, let's jump into some stories. We got some really cool stuff to talk about, and some positive stuff for once, which I'm really thrilled about. So, yeah. First up, climate activists issue scare warnings of impending starvation, but they ignore technology's future in scaling productivity. Next up, delusion and technology. How the internet exacerbates schizophrenia and other mental health problems, and finally, urban farming sounds great in theory but releases more CO2 than conventional agriculture. Here's what needs to change. Okay, Liza, really, uh, really crazy. I guess crazy edges to some of these stories. We'll we'll say here, but this first one, <clears throat> if you uh, if you didn't guess already, this is the, the more hopeful, positive one. I want to say this is by Alex Smith, Emma Kovic. Kovac, excuse me, and Patrick Brown. They're from the Breakthrough Institute. Um, and their expertise, <clears throat> as far as I understand, it's it's climate and sustainability, in, especially in the space of agriculture. So this is sort of a, a deep dive analysis. I encourage everyone to read this. It's a really, really great story. And we're only going to hit the, the high points of it here. So um, they begin by talking about a biologist named Paul Ehrlich, who uh, alongside his wife in 1968 wrote a book called The Population Bomb chances are if you're a listener to the show you're f- you're familiar with with Paul Ehrlich but in essence he predicted mass starvation i want to say by the year 2000 right the world was yep. just going to be in utter disrepair and people are going to be dying in mass it's going to be crazy obviously that has not happened that's right <laughs> and i love i love seeing it on twitter now you'll you'll get people who will take a quote of his where he says, you know, by this year, these many millions of people will have died, and then if you look at that that year, at that point in history, food production just absolutely just exploded. Right. Yes. Right. So that's that's the thrust of this story: is that we're constantly um, hit with these concerns and these fears of overpopulation, and we're all going to starve, and right, the end is nigh, kind of a thing. Um, now, even though Ehrlich's thesis has been completely and utterly debunked, he still has this kind of aura of scholarship, almost like a profit, I want to say, among some environmental groups. That's right. And they've just, instead of, because the focus now isn't as much on overpopulation, because as we've talked about recently, the population is declining and rapidly, especially yes. in, in the West. Yep. So, so they've repackaged his, his end of the world thesis with climate change as the driver.
1: <clears throat> That's right.
0: And so what our authors here point out is that um, while it is true that the Earth has warmed, I think they say about one degree Celsius, one degree Celsius yeah. in the last 50 to 100 years or so, um, and there are some studies that project a slight decline in agricultural production because of changes in climate, um, there's a large body of research that actually shows over the last several decades, the last 50 or so is, is the timeline they're looking at, uh, we've we've experienced massive increases in food production. So a couple of figures here, and then we can dive into some of the specific slices. So they say, and they're using a, a measure, it's called total factor productivity, which is just a measure of overall efficiency. So per unit of input, like fertilizer, how much food or how much of a given crop do you get out? So based on that metric, uh, food production or agricultural output has increased by 79%. Right. And this is over the last 50 years, just so we're clear on the time scale. And they point out that, um, the amount of land that's been put into work for agriculture has increased by 25%, or about 1.7 billion hectares yep. um, from 1970 to today. Uh, however, citing some other research, they point out that without the kind of innovations that we're gonna talk about, particularly in um, in crop breeding and then chemical inputs, without these things, we would have had to expand by another yeah, three, three point,
1: times or something, yeah, yeah 3.1 right?
0: 3.1 billion hectares of land would have had to gone into agriculture uh, which is important because there's really not that much left. We're farming right. most of the land that's farmable on this planet, um, so this is this is enormous. But but uh, the, the the major thing here, this is their, their what I want to say is their takeaway is they say, in other words, even with small productivity losses compared to a hypothetical world without climate change, yield gains during that period save just under a quarter of the world's total arable land that's right. in, from agricultural expansion. So. I don't know how to put this in terms that that make clear what's going on here. I mean, I guess one thing I could say is walk into a Walmart and look at everything on the shelves. Yep, everything. And the fact that that's just within your reach and if you have some income, I know money's tight for a lot of people today, but if you go to Walmart, you can say look at all of these fruits and vegetables, look at all of these foods and options I have. It's really incredible. But that's the end result of the the developments we're talking about. So, and that uh, is
1: unprecedented in, in the history of humankind. It is absolutely unprecedented the abundance that we've had. And some people have issues with that abundance, but it's brought everyday ordinary people who used to be subsistence farmers a, a quality of life that it was only dreamed about at the turn of the nineteenth to twentieth century. It's 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 incredible what's
0: happened. So they talk about um, several things that have been important here. Um, The one that maybe we should spend a little bit more time on is um, improvements in crop breeding. So again, going back into the middle of the last century, we have mutagenesis where you're effectively just bombarding plants or seeds with chemicals and then creating these weird mutations. And every once in a while you get a really useful trait and then that goes into production. There's a lot of a lot of foods, a lot of fruits and vegetables that most people aren't aware of. Interestingly, a lot of them are certified organic. Right. That they're the product of mutagenesis or one of these right. earlier breeding techniques. Um, and over time, they make this point too: is that uh, with uh, transgenesis and with gene editing techniques like CRISPR we're getting more precise and
1: you can put these, we, you can identify what traits you want exactly. And you can put them in the exact right spot of the organism. So of the plant to to do exactly what you want and not have a yield drag or not have other, uh, off target kind of effects.
0: Yeah, it's very important. Um, they didn't cite this paper in this analysis, but we've talked about it before. It was a study in, uh, Journal of Political Economy or something, but they they put the figure at eighty three trillion in terms of the amount of money that was saved by these innovations in agriculture over the last half century or so. Um, now there's a lot more to do, and one of the things they talk about, and maybe you can jump in on this because I know this is part of your expertise, is they talk about uh, you know most of this development has happened in the West, some of it has happened in in South America, um, but of course we have most of africa that's is still developing it's not quite fully industrialized um, yes. india is another example china's i think much further ahead but it's the same principle basically and and this is a an implication we should talk about later too is that these places need to industrialize they need to develop an economic base that can sustain mass food production like the west That's exactly
1: right. That's exactly right. So talk
0: about that. You spend a lot of time traveling the world talking about food and farming. So
1: Yeah, I think it's really, really important to think about this. So first the first takeaway from this study is that modeling for a hypothetical outcome turns out not to necessarily predict reality. And I believe in evidence-based agriculture, just like I believe in evidence-based medicine. So this hypothetical model that was built uh, by these folks from IPCC said that there was going to be a decrease in yield in, because, of, because of climate change in wheat by 4.9%, maize by 5.9%, and rice by 4.2%. So there was, because of climate change, this was really going to be impactful. What it didn't look at was what happened in reality. In reality, wheat increased by 200 Hundred and eighteen percent corn production increased by a hundred and I think I think it's eighty six percent, and rice is a hundred and forty seven percent. So this huge thing that that completely outweighed all of the um, predictions made by these Malthusian people who are saying the the sky is falling, it's good. the end of the world is coming. They seem to forget that uh, people are very very innovative and they can work around these circumstances. So. This is, but the, the vast majority of these gains are in the West, right? So once again, in 1900, 45% of our population farmed, and we lived to the ripe old age of 45. And by 2000, 2% of us farmed, and we added a 35-year increase in life expectancy, and a huge percentage of that life expectancy because it comes from food security um, and pest control in the form of pesticides. So, so to... Focus on this growing population in sub-Saharan Africa, and talk about how they're going to outstrip the food supply, and there's going to be mass starvation and destabilization of populations. With populations moving um, and migrating away from areas of destabilization, um, and how to manage that. Um, the 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 the, the, the recipe for managing that according to these guys in my opinion is actually worse the cure it is is worse than the actual problem because they won't take into account the actual productivity and the the inputs needed for that productivity to be able to support those populations and it's funny i went and read the the article that is talked about that's written by paul ehrlich and he talks about how um How what they need to do what we need to do is we need to put everybody on birth control, but we also need to decrease hormone mimics in our uh, in our food supply because they're causing they're causing a a problem with the population. So his propaganda is really kind of bizarre to me. I think if if you read the, the Genetic Literacy Project article, click on the Paul Ehrlich. Article in it because it's fascinating what he says, and he doesn't offer any good solutions. Um, what we have, we have good solutions, we, and we've had good solutions since the 1960s when Norman Borlaug came up with his dwarf wheat and prevented one p- billion people from dying. So um, I, I think that it's um, really important to follow the science when it comes to agricultural inputs and look at. You can do them. They're not. We're we're not perfect. There are things that we could mitigate, but look at the real world impacts that they've had, and they have not contributed to such an explosion in the population that you've outstripped the food supply. What food stability has done in the West has actually caused the population to actually start declining. (laughs) <laughs> right? Because you don't have to have so many kids to, to be able to farm and things like that. So there's some really cool innovations that have contributed to this because of biotechnology and because of things like gene editing and because of these advances, we've been able to decrease our, uh, reduction. so let's just talk about pesticides. And this is from, um, this is from one of Simon Mockling's uh, tweets and it's uh, Phillips McDougall 2017. There's been a 92% reduction in the use of fungicides globally, 97% reduction in insecticides, and 98% reduction in herbicide use. And that's because of advanced scientific advances made in agriculture. Um, Stuart Smythe just tweeted recently um, that in 1990, from 1995 to the present, In the EU, you've had an increase in productivity of 7%, USA, 35%, and Canada, 28%. And so we export more than we need to feed ourselves. And subsistence farmers in sub-Saharan Africa deserve the same technologies that we had that helped lift our population out of poverty and into food security and the, the golden age of human civilization in the 20th century um, so i think that you know i think that we sri lanka is an example of what happens when you apply the things that these, this group of people um the remedy that they're they're suggesting and in sri lanka as in in 12, uh, in in December of 22, so after their economy collapsed, uh, there were 6.2 million food insecure households, right? And so that's, that's the the downside. So scientific advances in agriculture are really, really important for one, mitigating climate change, two, increasing food security, and three, uh, making, um, civilization flourish. And, uh, I think that the, uh, the the trends that are mentioned in this article support that, and that IPCC is very misguided when it talks about uh, how, how climate change is going to impact food security based on its flawed
0: models. Yeah, there's so much else we could get into. I, to, to go back to Ehrlich's point about population for a second, I think not, not only is that wrong, but it's dangerously wrong. Because one of the things you need is people. Yes. Right? Yes. You need you need people that you can train to farm and to be scientists and to build buildings and uh, to clean things and to stock grocery store shelves. Right right. You don't I I, it sounds so obvious that I don't feel like I should have to explain this to someone with a PhD and, you know, whatever. But If you run out of people, you have a problem. And and not just in in that we're going to not exist, but if you have a a dwindling population of old people, you are in trouble. Yes, that's exactly right. It's a problem economically because you have, like in the US and in Europe, you have ballooning entitlements for people that are old, that are, they paid into the system their entire lives and they're ready to, to collect checks as they go into their golden years and go on cruises or whatever. But there's too few people supplying the economic output that would fund that. So that's a real problem. And I think it it, it it relates to this specific study that we're talking about in that you need the economic development to fuel this. So in other words, and I think this is what you were getting at, is Ehrlich and all his cohorts and a lot of the, the people in the press who allow climate change to drive this discussion are not only ignoring the actual solutions, they are working against them yes. because- and again, we just saw these farmer protests in Europe. Yep. The policies that they're coming up with are foolish, right? We're going to reduce our amount of agriculture output. We're going to export it to the developing world that isn't nearly as efficient yet. So we're, in other words, as the population declines, as the problem becomes bigger, we're going to produce less food on purpose.
1: On purpose. Because, and yeah. yes, and 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 we're going to say, so, you know, there, he's saying what a catastrophe it's going to be to have this huge amount of population, and so his suggestion is to use birth control to reduce that population, but the actual catastrophe is the reduced population <laughs> so it's it's like he it doesn't make any any make make any sense it doesn't make any sense it's a, it's a little schizophrenic
0: um, yeah it's and yeah and it's 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 foolish, and one final thing i'll I'll add here is that there there is a very strong anti-natalist movement today so so if you are like if you're a demographer you can study it and still maintain your reputation but if you get even remotely into the realm of activism that is Mm -hmm. trying to encourage people to have more children you're fringe right you're crazy you know we've made we've made all this incredible progress how dare you imply that humans should reproduce right it's that we're at that level of silliness you know yes um so there, in other words, and again, the, the BTI authors did not delve into these specifics. These are just sort of items that outgrow from what they're talking about. So it's very, very important. Um, I would encourage everyone to read this. It's really good. Uh, Patrick Brown, I believe at BTI was the researcher who published a paper in Nature Climate Change um, that exaggerated the effects of climate change on forest fires, or at least he left things out of his analysis that were key yeah. to it knowing that it would get published because you're, you're supposed to talk about climate change. yes. And he's, he's, he's written subsequent uh, pieces about this, about how he's not a climate denier, but he's just illustrating the way that policy is driven in many cases by ideological considerations and not strictly that's right. speaking evidence.
1: Now, yes, and that's the problem is that you should go with the evidence where, where the evidence takes you, regardless of whether it aligns with your political worldview.
0: So. yeah so in other words I think uh, what we're saying is Paul Ehrlich might have a, a symptom or two of schizophrenia
1: false <laughs> fixed I, belief in spite of overwhelming evidence yeah,
0: we're, we're, okay. we're,
1: we're we're not dead yet
0: <laughs> yeah yeah I was gonna I was gonna imagine and uh you know this is the second story we're gonna talk about is uh the impact of technology on schizophrenia so here's the title and then Liza of course is the MD working in emergency medicine I can only imagine. The, the things that you've uh, you've experienced in your career. So this story, this is originally uh, from UCLA, from their their media office. It's called the "Delusion and Technology: How the Internet Exacerbates Schizophrenia and Other Mental Health Problems." So just very briefly, the 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 key here is there are all sorts of psychological disorders, mental illnesses in the world, and we need to pay attention to how technology impacts. These populations, because broadly we we focus a lot on how social media affects teenagers, um, how it might affect people with eating disorders, for example, but yeah. certain subpopulations get overlooked because they're relatively small compared to the rest of us. You know, so That's right. the research is going to focus on bigger populations. But this is uh, this is sort of promoting the work of one uh, psychiatrist. Her name's Dr. Elena Byrne. She's at UCLA. She specializes in schizophrenia. And it it appears that the problem is it's it's hard to treat people who can't distinguish between a reality-based belief and a crazy idea, you know? That's right. And the the example she gives is, uh, you know, 20 years ago, if you thought the government was tracking you through your cell phone, you were a crazy person. You were the weird uncle that didn't get invited to the family reunion. Um, Today, though... We know that happens. It's it's unquestionable, right? We right. know your phone listens to your conversation sometimes. We know that Facebook and Google and these other companies scrape your data so they can market products to you. We know that government agencies are getting in on that action yep. as time goes on. So that's what she's saying. You know, you get people who can't tell the difference between those those concepts, and then they connect with other people on the internet that can't tell the difference between those concepts, and you sort of get this... I know this festering effect where these weird concepts and ideas, they grow and they expand. And so this That's is a right. problem for people working in, in these fields. So uh, jump in here. You've had, uh, as you were yes. telling me just a few minutes ago, some experience with... with so yes, schizophrenia this. is
1: actually one of the most fascinating psychi- psychiatric diseases. And until the 1950s, there weren't, wasn't really a treatment for it. And one of the things that people would have to do is be put away in institutions for a long time. And so when I was in medical school, um, there was a patient who... Um, was in one of these institutions. And this institution was in a rural part of the country um, in an old tuberculosis sanitarium. So the thought was that if you got sunlight, it would help treat tuberculosis because uh, the, the the bacteria it doesn't tend to do well in light. Anyway, long and short is that there were a bunch of little sort of pods around where people could sit in the sun and things like that. And this man was floridly schizophrenic, um, very, very disorganized thinking and um, thought that he was uh, in at Ravensburg concentration camp on Mars is where he thought he lived. But, um, but, and that wasn't too terrible. What was terrible was that he really missed his daughter who lived in Castlenock and he wanted to go see her. Um, and, but he didn't mind his that day-to-day existence except for this one sort of thought that he had that really, really troubled him. And the thought was that he could possibly be gay. And um, so if you were interviewing him as a male, you had to have a female there in case he would have an outbreak of this um, really uncomfortable situation for him. And so his way of curing that problem was to go get sunlight. And um, so every once in a while when he would have a huge bout of extreme fear of homosexuality, he would strip off all of his clothes and go streaking naked out into a cow pasture with doctors running after him trying to get him to calm down a little bit. But so you can understand that prior to this kind of the, the the advances that we've made. And so this was in the nineties. So we had, we had medications and things like that. This. this is a really de- debilitating problem for some people, right? Some people on the other hand are highly, highly successful, even though they have schizophrenia. So you, you don't know exactly who's going to be on what, what part of the extreme uh, spectrum. So some of the examples of people who are very, very successful are John Nash, who is a Nobel prize winner. A beautiful mind was that film made about him. He was a Florida schizophrenic. Um, and then the other person is Ellen Sachs, who is, um, I want to say she's the dean of the law school, or she's a full professor of law at uh, UC Davis or UC San Diego, in at, at one of the University of California uh, schools. And um, she has a fantastic TED talk where she talks about her diagnosis and how she manages her illness. And she's been very successful. So I don't want to say that, you know, schizophrenia is a disease that you can't, you can't manage, but some people have very, very florid outbreaks. Um, I've taken care of Tinkerbell in the ER. I've taken care of a, a variety of different people with various and sundry complaints. But schizophrenia is fascinating because nobody really knows. What causes it? It appears to be a little bit hereditary, um, but it's characterized by a few things. So auditory, like hallucinations. So people think that you're talking to them and it's, it's as real to the patient as my voice is now. So it sounds like uh, people in, in their heads, even that, even though they're not necessarily present they have auditory hallucinations, and then they have delusions. So they'll have, and where I think this is interesting, and I think this is interesting in terms of this particular article, is that delusions are reinforced by what, we're, what we have today in terms of, the, if you used to think that the FBI was coming to get you, or somebody was broadcasting to you from a t- television set specifically, the, the psychiatrist would be like, "Okay, that is one of the hard, concrete uh, uh, diagnostic uh, features of schizophrenia, right?" That 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 you know. You, you have this false, fixed belief in spite of overwhelming evidence to the contrary that something is true. So the the FBI is spying on you or or somebody's listening to you through your phone, right? The other thing that's really interesting is one of the kinds of delusions that people have are called thought broadcasting. And so that's when they think that somebody can read their thoughts, their, their mind, right? And they get very, very anxious about that because if they're thinking horrible thoughts about somebody, they're like, oh no, I'm really thinking terrible things about this person. And that's that. So that it's a point of distress. And then they also think that there's also thought insertion. So somebody's putting things in my mind. So that kind of points to, well, we've just talked about Neuralink last week. Right. And so Neuralink last week and and you're thinking, okay, so if I am broadcasting thoughts to a machine, that's actually becoming reality. And that and and, or thought insertion. Can somebody hack that machine and put a thought in my head? So those are those are kinds of really interesting things to think about when you're talking about the diagnostic criteria for schizophrenia. Um, So it's it's uh, what I do like about this article is it ha- it's making psychiatrists have to sort of rethink the way they approach schizophrenia. So one of the things that is fascinating is that the patients are often very distressed about the situation and they're put on medications to try to minimize those positive symptoms the hallucinations the delusions and things like that and when i say positive i don't mean those are good symptoms i mean positive is is they are uh active things that happen to patients that patients express distress over right there so it's characterized by positive symptoms and negative symptoms and we can talk about the negative symptoms later but um so so a lot of the focus is, you know, uh, group, group therapy and talk therapy and things to try to get them to understand that what they're hearing is not real or what they're thinking is not real with schizophrenia. There's a lot of, there's often cognitive, a cognitive component where a patient is not quite processing your explanation for why they're having these symptoms. So they may fully believe no matter what you say to them, that there's a problem. And so this is actually shifting the discussion into, well, how do you feel about this? And they're having to approach the side of schizophrenia more through the, well, how does this make you feel? And, and, and what can we do about how this makes you feel as opposed to whether or not your symptoms are real, um, and it's, I think it's going to maybe open some frontiers in um, thought about how to manage this very difficult, to, uh, di- difficult psychiatric illness. It's very debilitating. And people actually say it's rare. It's actually not all that rare. It's about 1, 05 to 1% of the population. And 1% of the population has uh, diabetes, too. So I think that, that, that's right. It, it may be increasing with obesity and stuff like that, but it, it's, it's not entirely that rare.
0: That reminds me of this uh, fascinating book that some of you have probably read. It's called Man's Search for Meaning by v- Viktor Frankl, mm. who, who was a psychiatrist. Um, and he was interned at some concentration camp during World War II because he was Jewish. And he wrote like half the book was written while he was there. And he talks about in the book how a lot of people who are younger and healthier, more robust than he was, died relatively quickly. Yeah. Even though they were suffering under the same conditions. And he goes on in the second half to explain that that's because you have control of your thoughts in the sense that if you experience something or a thought pops into your head, your reaction to it is completely under your control. And yeah. so he's, he's he talked about how... You know, by by working on my book or thinking about my wife, who I believe he was separated from during the war, you know, he was able to focus on things that brought him joy or brought him peace or, or whatever, and that helped him survive. And then he went on to have a very successful practice in the in the U.S. I want to say, um, but but again, totally different disorder. I'm not trying to conflate them, but nonetheless, it seems like there's some similarities in getting people to focus on their reaction to things and what, not whether or not something has happened to them or they're afraid. Exactly. Of exactly. Yeah. It's a really
1: fascinating, it's a really fascinating illness. Um, yeah. And it, and it can be very debilitating, can be very debilitating. And I think, I think that um, Paul Ehrlich's got a fixed delusion about how the world is coming to an end.
0: <laughs> There's a, there, before we move on here that i've mentioned the show scrubs but there's one episode where they have a psychiatrist visiting the hospital and she's having a conversation with someone and then this guy jumps out of the closet and he goes they're coming start to track your beams and then he runs into her office he goes there's my three o'clock schizophrenia <laughs> <laughs> you know? so yeah. i could just imagine what it's like to have to and they need they need care and they need treatment but i i, I
1: just, and most of them yeah. are not like that, most of them are yeah, are right. you know much more sort of low, low key actually they're, they're that's the the negative symptoms they kind of have flat affect they are you know removed they they are asocial. they don't like to have a lot of a lot of interaction um so that and the, so there's a whole bunch of cat- categories- there are a whole there a whole list of things that make them less likely to interact with society so the the description of a florid schizophrenic or a violent schizophrenic are, th- those tend to be on the fringe as opposed to the normal everyday schizophrenics.
0: Sure. Yeah. The stuff that makes it into movies and TV, almost always dramatized, uh, typically not accurate. So strictly yeah. for entertainment purposes, do I bring that up to say, you know, every once in a while you get a guy who thinks he can suntan the gay away or whatever. <laughs> All right, Um, let's move on here. Final story of the day. This is by Joanna Thompson at Scientific American, and it's called uh, Urban Farming Sounds Great in Theory, but Releases More CO2 Than Conventional Agriculture. Here's What Needs to Change. Um, And this is uh, amusing for a few reasons we'll get into, but she starts out and she says, you know, if you go into one of these hipster neighborhoods in Brooklyn, New York, or you know, maybe in Portland, Oregon, you know, somewhere you go into a major city and you will see, if you're looking closely, you'll see these little areas of green and sometimes on rooftops, sometimes they're in between buildings, but in essence, what they are, um, are community gardens where, where there's a sort of chic movement where you grow your own food or you grow some of your own produce and it's a way to buy local and it's, you know, it's good for you spiritually or whatever, you know, whatever people in Brooklyn think these days. With their, with their twirly mustaches. But um, anyways, she says, uh, she says, right, This is a, it's a burgeoning movement in some of these cities, but um, there's some concerning developments on the scientific side. And she's pointing to a study in a journal called Nature Cities, which is interesting that cities have a whole academic journal committed to them. Mm-hmm. Probably multiple. Any case, uh, this study looked at small farms and gardens in major cities across US, the US and Europe. And what they found... Um, and I shouldn't smile when I say this, but I can't help it. Uh, <laughs> these low-tech urban farms, as they're described, produce up to six times as much carbon dioxide as mm-hmm. a typical, I guess you want to call it rural or conventional farm. And for things, for reasons we can discuss, this has to do with scale and with technological uh, innovation and inputs and expertise that farmers have that, um, you know... Yeah, Jude Judah so and so with his Coke bottle glasses doesn't have, you know, <laughs> right? The, you know, drinking fair trade coffee doesn't make you an expert on <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: on agriculture. Yeah. Right.
0: Right. So I'll I'll um I'll stop. But but uh, it, what what was interesting to me is that uh, the the leader, the lead author of the study, his name's uh, Joshua Newell, sustainable development researcher, researcher at the University of Michigan. He says. We knew the CO2 emissions, meaning he said, we knew it would be high, but we didn't realize it would be so high. So in other words, not only is are the emissions greater in urban farming, in quotes, urban farming, uh, but they're substantially higher. So this was sort of a, and you get the, the sense from this article that this was, they were taken not what back they by expected. this. It was, yes. it, they were like, hey, this is sort of, this is threatening one of our... Uh, One of our special beliefs, right?
1: Almost as if they tried to torture the statistics until they confessed and couldn't get a confession, (laughs) right? So yeah, no, I think, I think it was pretty, pretty interesting. Um, There are a lot of things about uh, urban agriculture that I think are interesting. I think it's well-intended because I think one of the goals is to try to get people who are in food deserts um, access to fruits and vegetables and things like that. The thing is that it's not all that easy to grow fruits and vegetables and people think that they're going to plant a seed in the ground and, and voila, it's going to be spectacular. And not until they realize what it actually takes uh, to grow something. Do, does it occur to them that maybe it, there may be some little extra input that you need? And it was fascinating to me because I think um, in this article, they were saying that the individual gardeners, there were, there were, they were comparing conventional farming with individual gardeners and community gardeners and it was the community gardeners that actually had the hardest time and it had the biggest greenhouse gas emission associated with it. The individual gardeners I think uh, they said were a little bit more on par with the conventional gardeners and I have a hunch that's because the individual gardeners have learned over time that it's not that simple and have wound up using the inputs that Conventional uh, farmers use, whereas community gardens, you've got all sorts of plants growing together, and all sorts of different, you know, soil types, and uh, you've got pests and birds and eating your seeds, and you know, fungal infections, and so you've got to put in a whole lot of effort to keep your community garden alive. And I thought that was interesting. And the other thing that I thought was interesting about the article is that. Often you had to repurpose buildings to achieve this and that in and of itself was a big, big, uh, uh, big cause of emissions. So uh, this, you know, repurposing buildings or taking down buildings to have your little community garden was an issue. Now they did say that for certain things um, there was a pretty par. So if you pick and choose your product, that you can actually have the same amount of greenhouse gas emissions. So they use tomatoes and I think asparagus uh, as examples of of uh, similar greenhouse gas emissions. So if you're going to grow grow things, you might want to choose the things that are going to, you know, provide good, healthy produce, but also are going to have a decrease uh, admi- uh, emissions.
0: Yeah, a couple of things here. So uh, I should probably say up front that you know, having a garden, there's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's, it has a lot of, a lot of benefits, a lot of local benefits. So for example, at our church, there's a guy who's a gardener he's really good. He grows all kinds of stuff on the property. And every Sunday he lays out a table of herbs and fruits and vegetables and people just come up and help themselves. Which is fantastic. Yeah. It's sort of, it's a community service, right? It's a very practical sort of example of what they're talking about in this story where this can have benefits. Um, but I think it's been sort of pushed by certain certain groups and certain advocates as sort of an alternative to conventional agriculture, and the problem with that—and they don't really get into this in the story—but the the economics of it are pretty simple. There's certain parts of the world with certain climates, certain soil conditions that are really good for growing things. Yes. Right. California. So like <laughs> exactly. Right out here. Or Ukraine. Of, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, grains in Ukraine, for example, out here in California, nuts and specialty fruits and those kind of crops. Um, for ex- And on the other side, right, they don't grow pineapple in England. Right. Okay. So you have places <clears throat> that are better for growing certain things and it's better with the transportation technology that we have. I think the one exception is airplanes. But when it comes to like uh, shipping overseas, you can grow a bunch of whatever crop, you can move mass quantities of it to the place where people want it. And because of that scaling effect, the price goes down. Down, yep. So it's actually cheaper and more efficient to do that than it is to try to grow things locally. And people will say, right, well, if you offset the CO2 emissions, if it's grown locally, but of course, there's all these other inputs, right? So you have to produce fertilizer, which of course produces emissions, and you have to use pesticides, and you have to drive around the property, and you have to do it all by hand. So there's all of these costs and benefits that people don't consider. So that's why it's not a good alternative to, to agriculture. And then the final thing is that if you start to push more people to grow their own food, and a lot of people do it, you're actually diverting resources away from farmers that are really good at doing this, right? It's, it's typically, that's exactly right. it's a generational profession in many cases, so you have people that are learning from their fathers and their grandfathers and their aunts and their moms and whatever. That's exactly so right. So they get really good. There's technologies that they use as well. Um, and think of it like this, right? It's better for you to go buy clothes from a store than it is to try to figure out how to knit your own sweater how to... and to make your own jeans. You would spend Or how all to get of... your
1: own wool to knit, knit your own sweater, right. right? Grow your
0: own cotton so you could make a t-shirt, right? That would be enormously wasteful at this juncture. And that's one of the reasons people were so poor if you go up back through history is because they had to make their own clothes, or they had to farm and then they had to make a little money so they could go buy a shirt that they would wear over and over, you know.
1: That's exactly uh, right. That's, it's the same with food processing. You would have to do everything from grow the food, harvest the food, mill the food, and then, you know, put it into the different ingredients and make whatever your final output was. So if that's why food processing became uh, important.
0: Yeah, they talked to um... – they talk to two people. It's really funny to me, the contrast here. So they talk to a sociologist, and then they talk to an economist. And mm-hmm. I, as some of you can imagine, one of these people gets it horrifically wrong, and the other one gets it <laughs> gets it right. So, um and again, you sort of alluded to this, right? In the story, it's sort of like, yeah, the data says this, but, you know, like, we feel really good about these gardens, so let's do it anyway. Like, that's sort of the... The, the thing. So the sociologist says uh, urban farming is great if imperfect. And her name's uh, Carola grebitus And uh, she's mm-hmm. at Arizona State University. And her specialty is uh, food choice. I don't, yeah. So anyways. But but she mentions a few <laughs> things. She says, like, it's a powerful tool for education and job creation. It helps fight food deserts. Um, it, there's psychological benefits when you connect with nature, you know. And, and, like, as I said, to a certain extent, there's some truth to these. Um, But then when you talk to the economist, the economist quoted in the story says, for the reasons we just outlined, it's way less sexy, but it's true, right? Proportionally, it takes a lot more fertilizer, water and new infrastructure to grow a serving of vegetables in a relatively tiny urban space compared to a conventional farm, which is already designed for high yields. That massive difference in scale and optimization accounts for most of the carbon discrepancies. So again, it just sort of sums it up. You know, you've got this one person who's like, yeah, but job creation. It's like, well, if it doesn't scale, then it's not going to create jobs. That's, that, yeah,
1: that's right. Okay.
0: That's right. Um, so yeah, I, I, yeah. Have a garden if you want to. If it makes you feel good. I get a kick out of growing mandarins in my backyard. I'm never going to feed that's myself. Awesome. Never going to feed myself. I get that. It's just kind of fun. You know, it's this thing I can do with my family. Um, but farm farming is great. And scale. Farming Big is farm's great. great. I love it. It's yeah, you should too.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Hug a
0: farmer. <laughs> it depends on the farmer, I would assume, right? That's probably, that's, that's probably true. That's probably true. Yeah. Yeah. Start with a handshake. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'm just that's kidding. Farmers one. are great. I dig farmers. They feed us. Okay. Me too. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. Thank you as always for joining us, everybody. We are on X at Dr. LizaMD at CamJ English. Follow us. Give us feedback on the show. If you have questions, we'll answer them. And uh, we take suggestions if you want to talk about something. We get that. We get that from people. So yeah, we will we will interact with you. We'd love that. Uh, follow Genetic Literacy Project, because they put this all on for us. They publish all this content. They let us say what we want, which is great in this day and age. They are at genetic literacy yes. on Twitter. And with that, we will see you next time.
1: See you next week.